Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code ARCPODNETFEED at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code ARCPODNETFEED at liquidiv.com. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You have my sword. And you have my bow. And my trowel. Hello and welcome back. You're listening to episode 7 of And My Trowel, where we look at the fantastic side of archaeology and the archaeological side of fantasy. I'm Ash. And I'm Tilly. And this is the second part of our discussion with Genoveva Dimova, chatting about all things Ents and archaeobotany. Let's just remind ourselves of where we were before. We were rudely interrupted by that scary Nazgul. Mm-hmm. So, we've met Treebeard, we've accidentally sampled his leg, we've been commissioned by the Hobblebush Historical Society, who also write our newsletters, to date and identify not only the fallen, but the living Ents that marched on Isengard. We're taking the hobbits to Isengard. So, oh, God. Oh, sorry. <laughs> now, Jen, we know a little bit more about Ents. Let's start to think about how we can tackle this problem over a pint. So, first of all... Do you think this archaeological concept or any archaeological concept can be applied to fantasy? I think they absolutely can, because obviously the main purpose of archaeology is the studying of cultures. And I feel like it goes for real cultures or made up cultures. That's so true. Yeah. I I heard this thing recently in, in a lecture I was in that said that archaeology is part, it straddles reality and myth. And I I quite like that because we don't know everything, but we do know bits of it. Yeah. So, yeah, the fact that we can apply to all different types of cultures and look at the study and activity of people, ants, plants, everything, (laughs) sentient beings, golems, (laughs) everything. It's fantastic. It's interesting and it's engaging. And I mean, like you said in our very first episode, it's storytelling. Yeah, it is. It is storytelling. Yeah. It is. Yeah, uh-huh. It's building narratives. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's an interpretation, isn't it? You're interpreting mm-hmm. that yeah. site and you're saying, oh, yeah, somebody once had a fire here. Um, <laughs> somebody once ate a poisoned piece of cereal. <laughs> cockle, 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 what was it? What was corn it? cockle. Corn cockle. Corn, corn cockle. cockle. Someone <laughs> ate a, a poisoned piece of corn cockle once upon a time and went a bit mad and had a horrible death. Oh, that's going to haunt me, Jen. That's going to haunt I, me. He didn't die. He was absolutely fine, I suspect. I mean, we didn't find any evidence he died. He pooped it out and I'm hoping went along his merry way. Oh, God. Right. I thought he died. Oh, I'm so glad then. He just <laughs> pooped it out and you, you, thousands or hundreds of years later, it's in your desk. <laughs> <laughs> So how do you no think one knows we... what we're talking about? Listen to the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> Out of context, this sounds really weird. Um, oh, yeah. God, I've been having so much fun. Well, my colleagues might disagree, but I've been having a lot of fun with my little assemblage of medieval poop. I have been keeping it on my desk and reminding people during lunch break, oh, by the way, my poop's here. And um, I had to go and compare it to the um, color chart, the monster chart. So obviously I announced loudly I'm going to compare my poop to the monster chart. I thought that was very funny. Nobody else did. 
So yeah. What's a, uh, a Munsell chart for the sake of... Oh, <laughs> it's this color chart that we use usually to describe the color of archaeological context, like the soil color. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I and what I've you... seen one for tea. Oh, really? <laughs> Where they say, do you, good tea, bad tea, you know, if it's too weak or something, it's a certain color. And yeah, it's, it's, it's the same concept, yeah. Okay. Good okay. deposit, bad deposit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can't use brown, brown, or anything yeah, no. brown. The word brown you cannot use. You can so, use brown, but you need to you, add you, all sorts yeah. of... Yeah, you need, like, brown, orange, sandy silt. Yeah, light, yeah. dark, that sort of thing, medium. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You need that, otherwise everything's brown. And does that mean that you have to, so speaking as someone who hasn't had that much experience with excavation archaeology, do you know all of the colours in your heads as you're digging or do you have to have the Munsell chart there to refer to? Um, normally, yeah, on the, <laughs> in the field, we normally just describe it as we see it. Like you would use three descriptions, like light, yellowish, brown sort of thing. The mm-hmm. Munsell chart comes in later if you need to be really, really specific about exactly mm-hmm. what shade you're looking at. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like whenever I've filled out context sheets, it's usually just whatever you see yeah, in the ground you write down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were so specialist that needs the precise color descriptions. Yeah, exactly. That must be so hard. I mean, how how biased must that be, though? <laughs> because I'm just thinking, it's such a you know, how can we be sure that everyone sees color the same? <laughs> like, surely well, maybe one. That just goes back to its own interpretation and right? building narratives. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's why you have photography as well on site too. Mm. You know, but you photography, you're taking, photography yeah. can also, I mean, the amount yeah, of, it can. Yeah. But then you've also got you've got well, you've got the context sheet, then you've got the photography, then you've got the sample. Yeah, as well. And then you can do a little drawing, (laughs) which is not coloured, but still. (laughs) And you'd probably say what your inclusions are as well. So if you had a lot of charcoal, you'd say, Uh you know, mid inclusions of charcoal, like, you know, or something like that. So it's just... It's just the and, way it's always been. <laughs> and does this, just because it's always been that way. I know. <laughs> do I, and when you're looking at the soil, does it have to be like dried out or do you look at it when it's wet, like when it's freshly dug? That's actually a very good question. And I don't think it's something that we've kind of agreed to mm-hmm. like, oh. look at the specific state of it. Normally it's wet when you have just dug it out. Because hmm. surely then the colour changes too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... That's a good point, and it does change. And sometimes the color that's described in the field, and then when I come to look at it in the lab, it's completely different just huh. because of things like that. Huh. 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 Anyway, sorry, I don't mean to. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. It, it, makes, <laughs> it's, it makes sense, though, because that's where you find the stuff. I mean, that's where all the samples for anything come from. So, what we used to do on site, and Jen will attest to this, we used to have a thing we called the scusha. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you fill it up with water and you literally, if it's too hot and it's dried out, you just scoosh water all over it and go, oh, there you go. And then you'd record it at that point um, oh. when it's wet. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just dusty. <laughs> you can't yeah. really see anything. There would be days we'd go around scooshing <laughs> features. <laughs> yeah. Is that yeah. the technical term? Is that it is a very cycle? technical term. <laughs> yes, it is. Anyone in Scotland, if you say get the scoosher, they'll know exactly what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sorry. so that's a fantastic discussion. 
And we'll bring it back to archaeology and fantasy. (laughs) Do you think we can use archaeology, actual archaeology, within the fantasy context? I don't see why we wouldn't be able to. I feel like archaeology is a broad enough discipline and I think we can use exactly the same methods that we use for real cultures that we could use the same ones for fantasy cultures. Yeah, exactly. Tilly, do you have any examples of stuff like that? Well, I, I do actually. I can't remember if I've already talked about this in an, an earlier episode. I think I did, but I'll mention it quickly again. <laughs> but, uh, one of my professors at university used to give an annual lecture on the archaeology of Middle Earth, but it was really it was as if, you know, Middle Earth was an actual place. And it's like, oh, well, what kind of ones would we do? So my favorite rem- memory was that she mentioned a lot of things and I can't quite remember all the details. But one thing I can really remember was she talked about how listening to folklore, folklore seems to be a theme uh, in these uh, episodes with Jen, listening to folklore and sort of more ethnographic accounts, hearing the histories, hearing the songs can sometimes be very important. And that can give you context to the culture and and the background and historic references. And then she played a clip of the dwarves singing the Misty Mountains song in uh, the (laughs) Hobbit film, which was just amazing. And everyone there was going, oh my God, Um, because we were all (laughs) complete nerds. uh, Yes. So I I quite liked uh, that idea. But I'm curious what, uh, for you two, what would, if you could be an archaeologist in any fantasy world, I think actually you might have already answered this one because I think I also asked this in the first episode, but maybe Jen, um, if you could be an archaeologist in any fantasy world, which one would it be? Oh, that's really hard. I don't want to repeat myself, so I'm not going to go to this world, even though I think you can find some fascinating <laughs> things there. <laughs> I I might go with The Witcher, actually, because I feel like I'm quite knowledgeable about Slavic folklore, so I feel like I'll be quite like able to interpret all the strange things that I find. I'll be able to go, oh, this must be because it was haunted by uh, Kikimora or whatever. So <laughs> I feel quite prepared to be an archaeologist in the Witcher world. <laughs> Didn't, I isn't that what you it. said, Ash? Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> did you? Well, team again. We've worked together before and we've worked together again. Do you have? <laughs> It'd be great. Yeah, no, completely. I think I can totally see you as like a cool archaeologist sorcerer. Like, I was just going to say, on. I feel like being an archaeologist is kind of a safe option in the Witcher world because you don't have to fight. <laughs> yeah, so, we'd be a side quest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, help the archaeologist. Just, oh, hmm. I can't find my troll on the battlefield. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's exactly what we do. I mean, let's yeah. be honest, though. If they introduce that into like the Witcher games and everything, there is a big audience for that in the archaeological <laughs> community. I'm oh, pretty definitely. sure every archaeologist in the world will be like, yes, <laughs> I'm I need it. I need yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And I've got another example. There is the archaeology of Skyrim. Oh, as yeah. well. People dive into games as like archaeo gaming and things yeah. where you can go in and see and like immerse yourself in the world. But, you know, it's through, through the game instead of a book or a fantasy scenario or a real scenario, sorry, <laughs> that, you know, you can do. So that that's always really fascinating as well, how people can use gaming and stuff like Assassin's Creed. They use mm-hmm. it quite often in order to reconstruct certain time periods. Hmm. Um, they work with archaeologists all the time in order to get that that city or that landscape correct. I don't there's, know that. That's really interesting. There's a really interesting project. I, I'm not sure if it's still ongoing, but it was ongoing for a while with one of my colleagues at Leiden University, Was actually got a postdoc, a funded postdoc position, working for a project called Value. And it looked at 
gaming, archaeo gaming, basically. And it also looked at like actual like archaeological board games and sort of as in historical games, you know. So evidence of games from the past, but it also looked at gaming as in video games and, and that kind of thing, but from the archaeological perspective. And they have this, oh, they had, I think they might have kept it going as sort of a fun thing. They would stream the games and have someone playing the game, but also commenting on the archaeology of it. Yeah, I th- actually think I watched one of those streams. It was Far Cry Primal, mm-hmm. which was set in the Paleolithic in Europe, very beginning of the Paleolithic. And they were looking at what was like accurate, what was not. Like sometimes they had some animals that definitely weren't accurate. <laughs> and then they had like, but it was interesting to see that their culture and how they'd sort of reconstructed that and what kind of archaeological like artifacts had, had popped in and stuff and how much they'd actually gone in depth with it. And they were kind of walking around, not really playing the game, just sort of walking <laughs> around the landscape like, oh yeah, no, that's possible. Or no, that's, what is what is that? Why is that like, <laughs> tiger here like you know (laughs) stuff like that so it was it's quite fascinating that you can actually do that with a completely fictional world Mm. well and things like dnd i'm pretty sure like they could include you know what is it bard barbarian if they included archaeologists like they'd have a a lot to do i think you know because so much of it is based on history and you know learning the lore and all of that kind of stuff if you could put me in Baldur's Gate 3 as an archaeologist, <laughs> I'd 100% be there. <laughs> like, I'd be like, hi, Hysterian, how you doing? <laughs> Are you there to work, Ash? <laughs> uh, yeah, obviously. He's a vampire. He has historical knowledge. Like, I could use that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well yes yeah <laughs> works all the time anyway um <laughs> so we've sort of come to the conclusion that yes you can use fantasy elements um in archaeology and you can use archaeology and fantasy but how do you think in general it can help archaeological discussions to look at fantasy worlds and build upon that tilly i'll go for you go Okay, <laughs> I was about to say I have so much to say about this, but I don't want to <laughs> dominate the thing. Well, because I mean, I'm as as you probably are aware, a big promoter of trying to make archaeological kind of in- discussions and interpretations and knowledge in general very accessible. And I think that one of the easiest ways to do that is, well, that's why we started this podcast, right? Like, it's because I think one of the easiest ways to do that is to kind of demonstrate things through things that people are already very familiar with and. There was yeah a really interesting discussion that I saw somewhere about how you learn, even if you're sort of a big professor, you know, or something, quite a lot of the very, very, very base knowledge that you've learned probably comes from some fictional book that you read when you were little, you know, about the Romans or something like that. And so your kind of base understanding of, of history and of the past and of those kind of things are quite ingrained in what you have learned and what you have read growing up. And I think that then fantasy, so many, I mean, we've talked about it, right? So there's so many aspects of archaeology that you can talk about with fantasy. And I think that if you do it in a fantastical sense, also similar to what Jen said last episode about the amazing thing of Terry Pratchett's Discworld, see how I'm managing to rope that back into this episode as well. (laughs) He is able to talk about really big world issues through a fantasy story. And I mean, one of my favorite things about this world is that technically if you took the fantasy out, it would still be an amazing story. Mm-hmm. And I know that not all fantasy is like that, but still, I think that that's really, that can also be done with archeological discussions. You can use kind of fantastical examples to provide, I guess, a more nuanced discussion of issues in archeology, span issues in the world, issues that 
something to do with our past. Anyway, yes, that's that's what I think. Yeah, I think that I completely agree with you, Tilly. I think we should raise a toast, actually, <laughs> to the future of archaeological fantasy. <gasps> oh, actually, we're out of drinks. Oh, is it Hang my on. round again? Yeah, you need to go get it. I'm okay. not doing it. <laughs> right, I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> okay, right. Give us a minute and we'll just refill our tankards. Welcome back and cheers! 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 <laughs> Thanks for getting me the right pint this time, Tilly. Yeah, sorry. I didn't realise that it was half pints when you did it before. Oh, God. Half pints? So... We've had a big discussion about everything that we know about archaeology, fantasy, and we've got this scenario. We really need your help, Jen. So I want to ask you, how would you deal with this scenario based on your archaeological experience? Okay, so first thing we need to do is we need to draw a very detailed plan of the scene, because I can imagine it would be an absolute mess. We need to know exactly where we're taking our samples from. So once that's done, I would probably try and sample each distinct end as much as I can identify them. I can imagine it's absolute carnage, but we'll do our best. After that, I would probably take all the samples back to the lab and I'll have a look under the microscope. And I would try and ID the species because, as we know, ends take the appearance of the trees mm. that they're looking after. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine if we ID the species, we'll be, have a very good idea of the identity of the particular end. And if that just quickly, how, how easy is it to identify species from? Um, it's fairly easy. If you have burnt wood or waterlogged wood, it, each tree has its own separate cellular structure that you can identify under the microscope. So it's literally just matching patterns. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry for interrupting. I was just curious. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. After that, if we still have some questions, we're not sure, I would probably want to take dendro samples. And I think that's where things might get a bit tricky and we'll have to be very diplomatic because... And, and what are dendro samples? <laughs> dendro samples are, well, I'll probably go for cores. So a core is you literally take a drill to a tree and you oh. take about five millimeter core out of it and it doesn't harm the tree but i can imagine approaching an ant with a big drill will raise some questions <laughs> but i feel like if we explain to them that that's the best way that we can identify them and also their fallen comrades i feel like they would agree and the main purpose of it is that we use it to build our dendro chronology essentially what you do is you take a sample and you count tree rings and the idea is that every tree ring represents a year of the tree's growth. And if the tree was growing in good conditions, it will be a big ring. Obviously, the tree grew more. If the tree was growing in poor conditions, it will be a smaller ring. So by tracing the sequence of rings, you can go back to the exact year when the last tree ring was laid. So when the bark is, when the tree died. Mm -hmm. And so... That's how it would go about it. So why would it be necessary to then take samples from the living ants? How would that help us in this dendrochronology thing? That will help us because we'll know that the trees have grown in the same forest. So we, if we have a tree that is dead, and for example, we have the last five rings that then correspond exactly to five rings in a living tree, we'll be able to compare the living tree sequence to the dead tree sequence and that will help us get a more precise date 
Oh, so you almost have like, mm. if you have like one piece of paper with like 10 lines on and then the mm-hmm. top three lines are the same as the bottom yeah. three lines on another bit of paper, then you can kind of make a whole. Oh. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's how we built dendrochronologies and that's how, what, how we do it nowadays as well. We still sample living trees. Okay. But how, what about knowledge. if there's, are, are there any bits missing or are you able to just kind of go, like, is it pretty solid, the dendrochronology? I mean, what if, for um, example, we're looking at the ends and then there's like, oh, but we don't have any bits in between this age. <laughs> well, hopefully that won't happen. I'm hoping <laughs> it's always a possibility. But I feel like hopefully with a, enough samples, we'll be able to build a pretty solid chronology. Ah, so I have two questions. The first is how would we be able to tell between an ent and just a normal tree? Ah. Good question. That is a good question. How would we be able to? I would expect that there would be some difference in the cellular structure. I mm-hmm. would expect that it might show up in the dendro samples as well, because as I said, the conditions of the tree are affected. The, you, you can see them really clearly in its dendro structure. So I feel like if a tree made poor decisions, it will have some very short, very thin rings in there that you'll be able to say, oh, something's not looking quite right here. Or if you traveled somewhere, which non-living tree obviously can't do, I feel like you'll be able to, again, spot that. Hmm. Ah, yeah, That's of course. Yes, yeah, you, you would be environmental. Yeah, you can see like environmental effects then as well on the, on the trees. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can see things like uh, volcanic eruptions. You can see like a really rainy year. You can see a really good year. You can so we could really the see the, the impact of what's mm-hmm. been going on in Fanghorn Forest for uh, generations, perhaps years, of, of when you know the orcs have basically cutting them down and using them and mm. burning them, and we could see that impact in the growth of the surrounding eds in that. You forest. should be able to, yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. But so based on that, because obviously trees, they sort of grow in the same place and therefore it's unlikely that they'd move from place to place. But did Ents, were Ents always in Fangorn Forest or did they come from somewhere else? Do we know this? It seems like they came from perhaps somewhere else. Okay. So the story of the Ents sort of begins and they're the trees of the great forest. And during the age of stars, they're under threat. And so these great spirits that are created upon request of Yavanna, they, they come into the forest to live among the trees and protect them. And as they kind of nurture these trees, they later evolve into looking like the trees and then they're known as Ents. But presumably then the sort of earlier layers, if you would do mm. a dendrochronological sample, wouldn't actually look like trees then. Yeah, presumably they'll look like people, which is kind of creepy. Right? Can yeah. <laughs> you imagine looking at a plant sample and being like, ooh, oh, that's a blood cell. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really, like, yeah, worrisome, actually. Right? Well, I suppose if you're an archaeologist in Middle Earth, we have to kind of expect that thing to happen. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, true. And it actually reminds me of the Naomi Novak thing with mm. the trees <laughs> engulfing humans. So yeah, that's very interesting. My second question would be, could we get like IDs from them? Could we actually identify a downed fallen ent as someone that the living ent would know? And then we can get like a, a kind of, kind of a Human, not a human ID, an end ID from them to to can repatriate them properly and give them the burial right that they deserve. 
Um, I suppose it would depend on if the living ants know the exact age of the fallen ants, mm-hmm. if we're using the dendro samples, or if we're going by species, if there's only one ant looking after one species, then we'll definitely know that that's that ant. But if there were several, then it might be a bit difficult to differentiate between them. I feel yeah. like, from what you said earlier, Ash, that there probably is only one per species. Yeah. I'm not sure, actually. Well, that would make things easier. That would make a lot of things easier. <laughs> yeah, it would. And I suppose they kind of look, well, they don't look similar, I suppose, do they? They saw the remains that we would find would probably be identifiable. But I was thinking more just on a, a kind of cellular basis. Yeah, that's what um, I was assuming, that they are burnt down and like unrecognisable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. But that would be quite interesting because I think the Hogglebush Society of Fanghorn forest Mm -hmm. would actually really like that to be able to identify the ants who have fallen and kind of have that record of them um sacrificing themselves for the the greater good Mm -hmm. as they march on to isengard and in terms of so this dendrochronological dendrochronological (laughs) dendrochronological honestly i can't say this word dendrochronological (laughs) where's the emphasis (laughs) like a tree chronological Dendrochronological. There you go. Ah, there you go. Uh-huh. You got it. <laughs> I, I was trying to put the emphasis on the cr, and I don't think and that just doesn't doesn't work. Okay, right. Native English speaker here. <laughs> so the dendrochronological <laughs> sampling sounds like indeed, and you mentioned as well, it's sort of all based a lot on pattern recognition and mm-hmm. sort of being able to compare different things. Is this something then? I mean, how has that developed over time within archaeology? Was it? It sounds like it's sort of quite a. I mean, no. And I don't mean this in a negative way, by the way, but sort of by simple method, I more mean it's something that could have happened then before, I don't know, isotope analysis, dating, and, you know, all of this kind of fancy stuff. It's sort of a more straightforward, technically, way of, of looking at things. Is that true or was it different in the past? How, how is yeah, it Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, I think, I believe it was a Greek botanist that first noticed it in like 300 BC. <laughs> Oh, wow. So, yeah, it is an old method. It is an old method. I think the way we kind of use it nowadays is probably a bit of a later invention, maybe 19th century, I would say. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it's the fact that trees lay a ring every year and then you can compare those rings and notice patterns has been noticed for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. It's quite cool because it gives you an exact date as well. Like everyone who's dealt with C14 dating will know that it gives you this sometimes quite a big range which you don't get with Dendro, you get an exact year. Wow. And how far back does it go then? I mean, do um, you have the original there, records geez. from 300 BC? There's only someone does if it's been recorded. <laughs> <laughs> Some bits of paper, and then you could just line them up against all the other bits of paper, which have all the yeah. other lines on them. <laughs> like, oh, that's amazing. Uh, no, in terms of tree age, yeah, we have complete chronologies going back to thousands of years ago. We have wow. back, yeah. Uh, that's fascinating that is really cool overlap them yeah so you could you could wow you could just trace trees for eons it feels Mm -hmm. like wow that's amazing and are there then any so i mean this yeah relatively simple i'm using simple in like inverted commas (laughs) here but i don't mean simple in like you know but can you then also use so i'm just thinking for example with people i know that you can 
use things like isotope analysis to look at, for example, oh, what they've been eating, where they were born, where they've mm-hmm. traveled to and all that kind of thing. Can you do similar things with with trees, so more kind of chemical analyses? We don't tend to do chemical analysis. I mean, obviously, it's an organic material, so you can do all sorts of, like, you can do C14 dating on, obviously, on charcoal and um, mm-hmm. three remains. And we, what is C14 dating? It's radiocarbon dating. It's essentially measuring the levels of carbon to give you a date. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. It's all about half-life and things. Yeah. That's the yeah. radioactivity thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Half-life yeah. of carbon and mm-hmm. it decreases over time, I believe. And then yes, they can measure the... that. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Good. Sorry, I thought I'd better add that in. <laughs> no, no, it would be fascinating because do ants have teeth? <laughs> That's a good question. Sure, surely not. <laughs> I mean, would they have like bark teeth? They, they I read about that. They eat water. They have oh. special type of water that they consume. And I don't think they eat any actual food. So then they wouldn't need teeth, I guess. Presumably. But then maybe the the, the water the bark could tell you a lot. Anyway, sorry. I, I also I interrupted true, yeah. you because you were talking about carbon-14. <laughs> so, sorry. Yeah. What, what were you going to say? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I don't remember what you. I can't remember what I was going to say. We just got blindsided by dents have teeth. Dents <laughs> have teeth. <laughs> no, no, I was asking about about chemical analyses that can be done. Chemical analysis on trees. On, I honestly on trees and plants. <laughs> honestly, can't think what else you can do other than radiocarbon dating. Okay, no, um, that's really well, interesting. Yeah, you can do residue analysis. That mm. might help if you want to figure out what they were eating. Although we know what they're eating, so. But if they're eating, useful. they're drinking, yeah, they're drinking, <laughs> they're drinking the lovely yeah. water. But mm. you can probably do something with the water, right? If you see where that came yeah. From. yeah, figured out if it's different species of ant, I suppose, like tree species, I mean, that, mm. that drink, maybe they need different types of water, maybe, or special yeah. water. And you could look at that, I suppose. That would be somewhere, if they're a living being in that case. Because can you see, for example, there's, uh, you know, trees that live in really salty marshlands or something. Uh There's trees that live in like freshwater situations and that's where they're getting their water from. Can you see that aspect? So the kind of the nutrients that the trees are getting. Are there ways to see that through kind of archaeobotanical analyses or is that not really something that's done? (laughs) That's not really something that we do very often. I can't imagine a scenario where that would be a research question. (laughs) Other than if you have ants, obviously. Who are moving around, right? But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you do have, obviously, you have certain trees that favor certain conditions. So, like, if you find lots of odor and birch on a site, you know that the conditions were quite damp. You have different plants that favor different habitats. Sometimes you have, like, resin canals in certain species at, like and mineral formations and things like that that you can see under the microscope. So I presume you can, yeah, you can maybe try and determine what type of water the ants were drinking, but I've never had to do it before. Hmm. Hmm. Well, there you go, something new for you to try. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so to recap, we'd probably go for dendrochronology, yeah, and sampling yeah, that way. I would say so, yeah, because they're presumably big enough, so why not? Mm-hmm. And we can tell the type of the tree they were as well. Mm-hmm. So different ID, sampling ID. Well. so we can really give you a good picture then really can't we we can go back to the Hogglebush Society and say Hogglebush Hogglebush Society <laughs> <laughs> and say yeah we can do this we can really sample the last march of the ends and we can give you 
a good historical and archaeological briefing on it. That's fantastic. So now we've worked that out, I think the Historical Hobber Bush Society is going to be absolutely thrilled. Mm -hmm. Oh, here's Treebeard. So Treebeard leans down, his wise, bark-coloured eyes staring into yours. He thanks you for all your help. It truly means the world to him to record the histories of the Ents. He pauses, and you see a thought cross his mind. You wonder if perhaps he has another mission for you. So Tilly, I'm going to need you to roll a charisma check. Oh, right, hang on. Oh, it's a 20. <gasps> a critical success. Yes. Brilliant. That means Treebeard sees that he can trust you. He sees a similar goodness in you that he saw in two certain hobbits and suggests that maybe in the future you could help him with a quest to record the archaeology of the lost Entwives. <gasps> that would be really cool. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fantastic. Well, that's about it for this episode of And My Trial. We hope you enjoyed this quest. Thank you so much, Jen, for helping us out in this particular problem. It was great to have you join us and we definitely learned a lot. Thanks for having me. By the way, we should mention, if anyone wants to hear a bit more about Jen's book, which is coming out very, very soon, early next year, we spoke about it a bit more last episode than this episode, so go back and have a listen. She will be coming to talk to our Archeo Book Club. If you're interested in joining the talk and the book club, you can find all of the information in the show notes. And if there's any suggestion that people have for an episode that they've gotten from a fantasy book or an archaeological concept they don't really understand, and then that we might be able to explain through fantasy, or even something in a book that they want to find out from an archaeological viewpoint, do get in contact via email or social media. All contact info for us, as well as Jen, will be in the references and further reading for all the points we've discussed today will be found in the show notes. Oh, Ash, I've just received a new quest from the top office. Oh, really? What is it? Oh, well, hmm. Okay, it's a bit different to what we've done so far. Do you have thermal underwear? <laughs> what? No. Well, you might need to order some for this next quest. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.